economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, on a previous podcast we did on rights, we kind of stuck to lockdown and the rights we have related to that. And we felt as we were talking that we there was a lot left on the table. So today we want to get into you know a little bit more on where rights come from and weave in some uh, biblical insights as well. And so, Justin, you want to start us off here? Sure. So maybe to pick up on something that we brought up last week, which was this, this discussion of, well, isn't there some gray area about when people's rights are being violated? So I said something like, you know, we ought to make rights-based arguments rather than merely utilitarian-based arguments against lockdowns. And Peter, to his credit, pushed on this argument I had. And he said, well, what about something like, you know, denying a blind person the right to uh, get a driver's license? Does that violate their rights? Is that fair to Yeah, if if memory serves. Okay. Now, once Peter said that, I started talking and everything I said built this house of cards up that then collapsed in on itself and didn't make (laughs) much sense. And you can go back and listen to it if you want. And one of the things that I realized afterwards is that I made a mistake, which actually I think a lot of people make and which I had written down even before the podcast that you shouldn't make when you do this kind of thing. So let me kind of (laughs) illustrate what I think that mistake is. And this is the idea, and I think in particular libertarians are guilty of this a lot, is that wanting to come to a clear distinct definition for what is and is not a right violation before you are willing to say that anything is a rights violation. So needing to draw this very, very distinct line for what is and is not a rights violation before you say, well, this one clearly is a rights violation. So we are going to, uh, we are definitely going to fight this. Now, just as an analogy, We all know when somebody is tall, right? I mean, for the most part, we can all, let me rephrase that. We all know tall people. Yeah, I'm thinking 6'3", 6'4", plus. I consider them tall. How about seven feet? Sure, of course. A seven foot person is tall, right? And somebody who is three feet is small or short, right? Now, where does that begin? Where does that end? I don't know. You can be a tall child. You can be a small man. But the fact that we don't have necessary and sufficient conditions for when somebody qualifies as tall doesn't mean that there is no such thing as being tall. And it also doesn't mean that I need a necessary and sufficient definition of tallness before I'm allowed to apply that predicate in my language and even base arguments off it. So to take that analogy back to the lockdown case, even if I can't answer Peter's question about whether or not denying a blind person a right to a driver's license actually constitutes a rights violation, and I actually think 
we need to argue about that. I, I'm not sure what the answer is there. I still can say, even though I, even if I don't have an answer to that, I can still say that locking the majority of Americans in their homes for eight months and forbidding them from, from doing their work is a rights violation. And so what I want to caution people against is, you know, you don't need to develop a full theory that tells you exactly when and when something isn't a rights violation before you are allowed to stop people from rifling through your stuff, right? <laughs> so, you know, so a burglar can't come to your house and go, you know, you start stealing your stuff and then you go, you know, this is my stuff. And they go, well, I mean, we're all Adam. I mean, where do I really end and you begin? I mean, we're all just Adam's <laughs> in the void, right? Uh, no. So I think that's the mistake that I made. In, and I think it's a mistake that I see a lot, especially among libertarians, since they are so prone to theorizing. <clears throat> so I don't know if we want to, if anybody wants to push back on that before we jump into this idea about, okay, well, you've just said you don't need a theory of rights, but where, what are they and where do they come from? It seems so simple, but it's deep and my mind is like uh, reeling a little bit. So I'm going to let Peter talk. <laughs> Why, thank you, Russ. No, I, I think that that's a good and appropriate response. I, I actually don't have much to comment on it because I, I'm surprised I didn't think of it at the time. I think our minds is drawn to extreme cases for the purpose of like trying to logically falsify things. And so like if we can show that this doesn't work in the extreme case, then maybe there's something underlying it that doesn't work. But even if there is something underlying like this rights theory that you're taking that doesn't work, and you probably hate this, but to me, if, if it approximates like the right answer in a lot of different situations, not being like the blind person, you know, a lot of other situations, to me, that's probably actually enough. So I, I don't have any sort of criticism or pushback on, on that idea. I, that, that sounds correct to me. We, we actually don't need to settle that discussion or that, that I wouldn't say argument, but, you know, we don't, we don't need to solve for the extreme cases in order to talk about the non-extreme cases. I think that's right. So the thing that I'm trying to process is when you said tall, I'm thinking that I guess there's maybe social norms or something of, you know, well, what do you mean by tall? And I'm thinking of that the vast percentage, some huge percentage of people, let's just say 90%, because then this is where this argument's going to come back to is, you know, like you'd think that almost 90%, 99% of people would think a seven footer is tall. Like we don't have to disagree with that. I can use the word tall socially when I'm referring to somebody that's seven foot because 99% of the people fall well below seven foot and therefore they would agree that that person is tall relative to them, even if they're six foot five. And so, but then we get into, well, what percentage of when we go down to, do you consider six foot five person tall? Well, you know, the Ottawa University basketball team probably doesn't consider six foot five very tall. So now we're getting into this relative argument. And so how does that relate to the rights? Because I, I think we look at the blind person thinking, well, 99% of us would agree that we shouldn't give a license to a blind person. In fact, maybe most blind people would agree they should, we shouldn't give uh, a license to a blind person. And therefore, help me out. That's where, I, that's where I'm stuck. Am I, am I on to anything? I'm not even well, trying to push back. I'm just raising like thoughts, I, I, that, I, I think, thoughts that I have I think related this, to this. I think, I think Russ, you're getting to an important point, which is it, we're starting to hit the question of where do rights come from? 
And so I think one of the things we need to be careful of is having an opinion that rights come from the whims of a large group of people. And so, uh, for example, in our, our tall case, well, if 95% of people uh, don't think someone is tall, well, then they don't think someone is tall. But what, what happens if we move this to rights? What happens if 95% of people don't think that you have uh, the right to something? Mm -hmm. Does that mean you don't have the right to something? I think the answer is no. Uh, but in order to have that answer of no, I think one thing we do need to construct is some sort of idea of if rights don't come from, you know, social norms or majorities or loud opinions, uh, where do they come from? So, Justin, can you tell us all where rights come from De definitively? <laughs> just give us the QED version of the answer. No. <laughs> so we can talk about our different couple theories of what rights are and where they come from. And those two things are related, right? Your, your, your answer to where rights come from will have implications for what you think rights are and uh, vice versa, right? Okay. So one answer that you find for where rights come from, um, and this is you know, typically codified in something like natural law, is that rights, uh, people have rights by their nature. And actually this can be given either a theistic or a naturalistic spin, depending on what, where, where you think our nature comes from, right? So it turns out that, you know, even naturalist natural rights advocates, I think tend to agree a lot of times with theistic natural rights advocates for the following reason. Natural rights say that we have the rights that we as humans possess, we possess because of our nature. And when they say, well, what do you, what's our nature? They tend to give things like rationality and autonomy. And since people are rational and autonomous, that means they're capable of reason, that is at least thinking through to what they perceive is the best option for them. And they are susceptible to our rational argument from other people. And autonomous, meaning that they can change their mind on their own. They are not, you know, fated to do something. And if that's the case, so this naturalistic argument goes, then we ought to have things like a right to freedom of expression. Uh, since we are rational and autonomous people, we ought, we ought to have the right to uh, try to influence each other since we are, you know, rational beings and we are susceptible to rationality and capable of it. We ought to be able to use it. Through like persuasion and voluntary exchange of ideas. And yes. Um, kind of rub, runs back to our free speech argument a little bit. Yes. And also have the freedom to do what we will, provided that we are not harming anybody else, since we are autonomous and you know, we can make our decisions based on what other people do, etc. Now, you can often find people on a theistic conception of rights, making a lot of those same claims about what rights we ought to have saying that God grants us those rights. And it seems to me like they often agree with the naturalist about natural rights in a lot of cases, because the naturalist about natural rights says, well, we have our rights based on what we are. And for them, the question ends there, right? And so they say, let's look at what, what kind of beings we are. Mm -hmm. um, created in, we'd get into the created in the image of God. Well, no, I'm talking about oh. the naturalist, oh, okay. right? So the person who isn't theistic, they just say, we are this kind of being. Mm -hmm full stop, right? And, but the theist has a, has a further question, which is why are we the kind of being that we are, right? 
So they typically agree about what kinds of beings we are. Mm -hmm. right. The theist just has a further explanation for why we are the kinds of beings that we are, which is that we are created in God's image or something. Right. Right. And, and we've got uh, Muslims, Jews, and Christians all on the same page on that one, back to Old Testament. Pretty close to the yeah. same page. Yeah. Right. Um, and my claim would be that the theistic and non-theistic natural rights advocates are on a similar page that, in the same way that you just said, that the monotheistic religions are all on similar pages, too. Right. So maybe not the exact same page, but pretty close. And so that's one view of rights. And on both these natural rights views, note that these are rights that individuals have independent of any political organization. Right. These are rights prior to a political organization. And if these rights are prior to a political organization, then they seem to constrain what kinds of political organizations are just. Mm -hmm. And that's why I brought up the religions that, that would cover the countries, too. If we think about Muslims, Jews, and Christians, you've probably covered uh, most of the countries around the world, almost, from a religious standpoint. Whether people within the country, whatever fraction or makeup are those religions, as far as organizing government, organizing ourselves, then the, the governmental laws at least somewhat flow from that, perhaps, from well, a theist standpoint. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the legal tradition in most of those countries is usually a, at some point it, it bumps into a, a religious sure. uh, backing. But I think Peter's brow is furrowing so hard his glasses are going to pop <laughs> off his head. So I think he has something to say. So I, this might be too much for the podcast day. It might have to be a different day. But you made a bit of a jump. And uh, you, not you, but in speaking for the, the naturalists, at least, though, I, I think this maybe doesn't apply as, as much to the religious or the theistic arguers. But you said that the naturalists say that people are a certain way, and therefore we ought to do something related to that. But isn't, what, what is the, the connector there between because something is a way that it should be a way? Because we, we don't behave that way normally. It's not like, you know, we say people in a certain country are poor, therefore they should be poor. So why, why would we say that just because people have a nature that we should act in accordance with that nature? You listen to me, David Hume. <laughs> <laughs> David Hume famously said that you can't derive an ought from an is, right? right? And so that might be the charge that you are laying uh, at my door here. Yeah, <laughs> which I understand might be too much for, you know, five minutes here of discussion. The response, I think, is something like, you're a humist. <laughs> <laughs> we always, we derive oughts from is claims all the time. You know, we can't, I can't drive, I, you know, seven lemons home. And that's why, you know, I drive a car home instead of a bag of lemons, because a bag of lemons doesn't have, you know, by its nature, doesn't have the capability to, to transport me home. So is that a coincidence or is that because of the is statement? I don't think it's a coincidence that I drive a car because a car <laughs> will get me home and I don't drive lemons because lemons won't get well, me home. What I'm saying is there are some things that are certain ways that we don't want to be certain ways and we actively try to change. In fact, you know, you almost wouldn't do anything at all. You would never get up and do anything if you wanted things to be the way that they are uh, rather than some other way. Uh, action is transformation. And just so you know, we're listening to a philosopher, listeners. Uh, when he says lemons, it's not a car that's a lemon. He's literally talking lemons. about driving yes. lemons that you yeah. might otherwise use for a cocktail. So yeah. I just thought it <laughs> exactly. Or a lemonade. Lemonade, yes. Or lemonade, yeah. yes. Yeah, so I think the answer has to be something like most natural rights theorists also take these qualities to be something like immutable. 
That is, that's what I was saying there, part I of see. our essence. It is an essential feature of humans that they are uh, rational and autonomous. I see. Right? And that's, that's mm -hmm. inseparable from their humanity. Would you say that you drive a car because it's pragmatic to do so? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm perfectly <laughs> comfortable being pragmatic about some things. Sure. I'm pragma sure. pragmatically pragmatic. Um, <laughs> that makes sense to me. <laughs> All right. Well, this looks like a good place for a break. When we come back, I was thinking on the huge percentage of people thing and whether rights come from that. To me, it seems like today's rights are being more and more generated that way. And is it due to a lack of understanding of rights that rights aren't taught in school in different traditions and that, you know, my rights are being violated? You know, even if you got 95% of the people agreeing with that, does that how rights are formed? Or, and so our, what kind of path are we heading down in today's society? Obviously, we've seen some examples of not so good stuff. Is that a trend that's going to continue or can we turn the corner? We'll leave that as our cliffhanger. Be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordy Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to the students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of gov markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have a book club coming up, or it's a non-book club, I like to call it, Federalism, Freedom, and Flourishing. Uh, it's a collection of readings that we have to help students understand federalism and, and what it looks like today and what it was originally envisioned. We have readings from people like James Buchanan, Nobel Prize winner, famous for his public choice theory, and some other authors. So if you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, that does things that uh, perk the interest of young people and ideas like federalism, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gordon Institute for updates on our activities and research. All right, so our cliffhanger was uh, kind of on what today's rights look like. Um, if we just have a huge percentage of people agree who's tall. Is that the way our rights are tending to look? And so Justin, you want to lead us off on um, another form of rights here? Sure. Well, there's another theory of rights that says what rights are, you know, and this, sometimes this is called like legal realism. I'm trying to remember, I, I know Derek Darby argues as a sustained book length argument for this view of rights. I think it's called rights, rights, race, and recognition. And uh, on this view, um, and this is the, the caricature to, you know, 90 second view of it. What rights are is just permissions granted by the government. That's, that is what rights are. Anything else is, and this has been described elsewhere as nonsense on stilts. This idea that we, you know, there is some rights that, you know, exist somewhere outside in the ether. That's, that's crazy. What we mean by rights are just the permissions that come from the government. Is, is that approach including they may have come from God or some other thing, but we don't really care. The rights are what the government says. In the terms of the origin, we don't really care. It's just whatever's on the books or? No, this, this is stronger than that. Okay. It says rights just are what the government permits. That is what a right is. Now, you can actually think of two 
strong and less strong views of this, and this might be close to what you're getting at, right? One view might say that's what there is and that is all there is to say about the matter, right? Which is that there would be no way to criticize any system yeah. of rights mm -hmm. given what a government says that they are, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one view. And on this other view is this idea that even though rights are just what a government says that they are, However, there are better and worse ways to arrange this system, right? So, and I think this is the view that Derek Darby argues for, because he is arguing that the uh, civil rights movement in the United States, for instance, was a was progress. You can't make that argument if you say rights just are whatever the government says that they are, and that's all there is to say about it. On that view, there is no criticizing any system of rights any more than there is, you know, criticizing a national flag, right? The flag is just whatever a country says the flag is. You know, there's no, there's no objective criterion for why one flag, I mean, flag, your flag just is whatever your country says it is. If you think that there is such a thing as progress in rights or progress in organizations of rights that a government might put forward, you have to think something like, even if rights are just what a government says that they are, there are better and worse ways to arrange these systems of rights. Does that make sense? Yeah, which might be from a pragmatic standpoint of we can increase GDP better if rights look this way or something. I mean, right. I mean, there could be other reasons. That would be one way to criticize them. Yeah, uh, exactly. And so I think this women's view, rights comes to mind in some cases, like you've got half the labor force that that can't work for because those rights aren't granted. Or something. Yeah, so you're right. Uh, GDP would be one way to criticize this, an argument from uh, like let's say the well-being of women would be another way. You, you wouldn't want to say from the rights of women because that would beg the question, mm -hmm. right? We might say that from the, uh, we can criticize the system of rights based on its, its impact on the well-being of women. So this weaker form of this view is actually open to a lot of the types of arguments that you might want to make anyway. It seems like this view that rights are purely political, but there are better and worse arrangements it may not be begging the question of rights, but it seems like it's begging some question of value. This to me is not any difference than, you know, just have just the flag, as you were saying, unless there is some standard of objective value out there, or, it, you know, at least some standard of value, uh, uh, maybe even objective. Yeah. Because like, for example, we could say, well, we want this right system, not because of women's rights, but because it'll make women better off because we don't believe that there's a such thing as rights. But making women better off implies that there is something that makes women better off and that it should be valued that we want to make women better off. And I agree with that, obviously, but it, it is begging like a deeper truth question here. This, you know, if you don't have some sort of underlying truth that women should be better off or some sort of benchmark that we know that that's the case, mm -hmm. uh, then you're almost like just, uh, it's like the flag, you know, let's make the flag green or purple. Uh, th this is either an opinion or it's based on something solid. Would you say that's kind of a, a fair criticism of this view? I think it's a fair criticism of the, the extreme view, right? But I think you might be reading a little bit of the extreme view into the moderate view. And the moderate view, I want to say, is actually so moderate that perhaps the only difference between it and a natural rights conception might be purely linguistic. Where a natural rights theorist might say, no, we have natural rights and we have political rights, which plenty natural rights theorists are willing to say, right? They might, they might say something like, we want our political rights to in fact match up with our natural rights, right? 
Now, somebody who thinks that there are only legal rights might say something like, these natural rights are crazy, but there are rights and there are better and worse outcomes. And we want our rights to match up to better and worse outcomes. And then they end up, they might end up agreeing on exactly the same systems of rights, which they find desirable. So this weak view is actually open and compatible with a bunch of value claims, which you know you might say well, it raises the question of what are the value claims? It does raise that question, right? Okay. And you can answer that a bunch of different ways, but it it doesn't try to skirt that question so much as it says it's a different question. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. It, it seems a, a little bit ling- like you're saying linguistic then that we have one side who says we have natural rights and we, other, we have another side that says we have political rights and we have these things that we want to pursue. And you know, I, I don't see a problem. I don't really see the difference between the two. We could just redefine the things that we want to pursue and make political rights as natural rights. But but I understand the difference. Yeah. So let me give the best possible argument sure. I can for this view. I could say something like, you natural rights theorists, you guys are the ones who are making things confusing. You have these two conceptions of rights. You're calling one thing rights and another thing rights. And you're saying the rights thing should match up with each other. Let's make things linguistically less confusing. Sure. Let's call the rights, the political rights, rights. And let's call the other thing something else. And then we want to make them agree. What What's confusing is to have people say things like, well, you know, I have my God-given right to X. And then when you say, well, what do you mean by God-given? Uh, one of the answers might be something like, well, there's, you know, the Ten Commandments. And you go, well, does the Ten Commandments really use rights language? Or does it tell you what not and not to do or what to do and what not to do. Right. And you might say that's perfectly compatible with this view that what we mean by rights is legal prohibitions or something like that. Okay. So I think that's the, that's the, I think the best case I can make for that. Yeah. I think there's problems with it, but that would be. Sure. I understand. Yeah. I, I see these as two sides of the same coin with just some different words being used. Yeah. And I think it is a linguistic skirt there too. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how the law, as we might think of it as Christians, might be different than the rights, which is a distinction you're making. So we have the Ten Commandments, uh, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make idols, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, remember the Sabbath, honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. So I just read this from Life, Hope, and Truth internet page here. So that how is so? There's a lot of shall nots. So it's more in the negative of not saying what you can do, but what you can't do, right? right. So it kind of identifies freedom and certainly to me uh, property rights. If we bring it back to a, a form of rights, the right your neighbor has the right to own property. And so do you. So don't steal their stuff. You can use your property however you see fit, as long as you're not stealing it from your neighbor or doing something else. So these laws, I guess, to take another step back, are meant are are showing humans how, from a biblical standpoint, you can't keep them all. <laughs> you need grace if we bring the the gospel argument back in. So laying down the law wasn't necessarily. I think some theologians would point out to say this is the way to live your life, do your best, and hopefully you work hard enough and, and God will balance out the scales at the end. That's not the point of view Lutherans would take, that the law is there because it's, show, it's showing you that you need to point to Christ for grace. And so you're going to break these laws, 
And so my point is that the law of the land could be different, might be somewhat derived from these, but not necessarily something that is at the end game meaningful for your uh, keys to heaven. So I kind of rambled on a little bit there, fellas, but uh, so help fill in anywhere you want with those. What if you said this? Because I think this might be close to what you were getting at with your uh, property discussion. While the Ten Commandments doesn't say you have the right to private property, right? Uh, It does say that you shall not steal. And it likewise says you shall not murder, right? And we could say two things about rights here. First of all, what those two pronouncements uh, are, are pronouncements of duties, right? You have the duty not to do X and Y. And typically when people talk about rights, they say rights come with duties, right? When you have a right, somebody else has a duty. You know, if you have the right to speak freely, others have the duty not to prevent you from speaking freely. People think that rights and duties come together. So you might say something like, though the Ten Commandments doesn't specifically use rights language, it uses duties language, those are inverse forms of the same thing. Hmm. Secondly, something like theft, for theft to even exist, it presupposes a background of property rights. There is no such thing as theft without ownership. So in a sense, you could say the Ten Commandments do assert rights claims in that they assert duties claims, and those are one in the same, uh, two sides of the exact same coin. And they also assert claims or make claims which presuppose the existence of a system of rights, like ownership claims. And that might be a way to get to answer my earlier charge that the Ten Commandments don't make any, doesn't use rights language. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the um, written on my heart. Peter, you had looked that up. What was that? Romans 2 or something that the law is written on our hearts? Yeah, I think Romans, it it tries to, uh, Paul in Romans is, is trying to, explain something Russ was talking about earlier, which is that we we do need grace in order to have salvation. And Paul's justification in Romans has to do with the idea that people do recognize rights. And so the, the Christian claim would be that there are natural rights, that they're in fact endowed by their creator. And in fact, this is a great way to bridge the uh, is-ought gap is to say, well, it is that way and God says it ought to be that way. Uh, and therefore, it, it ought to be that way. And so this is how I, I would do it, coming from a, a theistic natural rights perspective. But what Paul's telling us there is that, you know, no, there's not an excuse for people who violate these rights that God has implied with his Ten Commandments. And the reason there's not an excuse is basically our, our modern day conception of conscience. That is, Paul tells us that both the Jews who were, you know, known at that time to be God's people and the Gentiles who had become God's people through Jesus, both of them, even if they didn't have uh, the Gentiles, even if they didn't have explicit access to the Ten Commandments, the Romans said that the law was written on their hearts. And that was evidenced by the fact that the people uh, in those Gentile societies did have a conception of right and wrong and acted as if there were things that were correct and incorrect. And because they acted as if there were moral and immoral things, well, that means they had access to this idea and it was written on their hearts. And so the, the point Romans is that, you know, this, the, these laws, even though, you know, m- not everybody knows them, they do apply to everyone, which I think is a, a pretty strong argument 
from the theistic perspective for natural rights and interpreting the, the Bible that way. As I was trying to do a quick Google, uh, I came up with another one in Hebrews, which is kind of interesting worded, I think a little bit different than the Romans one. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So I think it's kind of interesting with the writing part being on the minds. And this, this was Hebrews uh, 10, 16, writing on the mind. I'm, I'm thinking about the laws already there in you, but we're going to use our minds as part of the, you know, verbalizing, communicating. I don't sure. know when I think write, write them on their minds. And that was from New International Version, but it looks like the other versions are something similar with writing on their minds. So. All right. Well, last call for words on this. Maybe we should talk a little bit about what happens when these two conceptions of rights come apart. Yeah. Like today, are we back to my cliffhanger of today's society? Are they coming apart now? Well, let's say that somebody, let's say that the legislature passes a view, uh, a law, which says that I now have the political right, you know, it's codified into federal law that I have the right to um, a certain degree of self-esteem and that my, you know, and I tell you that a prerequisite for my attaining that degree of self-esteem is that I need a certain amount of compliments from each of you every day, <laughs> right? And it's not going to be a small sum. My self-esteem is not easily sated, right? <laughs> Do thumbs up and likes and hearts count on, on social media or does it have no, to be verbalized? Uh, what does this law look like? I, I need things written by hand. <laughs> and he then submitted to the administration in triplicate. Yeah. And in that sense, you know, you would, if we had the view that rights purely are legislative, right, then clearly, you know, what is my right? I mean, look at the legislature. Yeah, I have the books, right? Yeah, now, just go to the book. There can be an interlegislative conflict in that you might say, but look, the legislature also says I that I have a right to free speech and I have a right not to be compelled to speak. So I don't have to give you those compliments. And then I go, well, look at the law. You do, right? So it seems like legislatively there is no way to answer that question unless we use like legislative priority, mm -hmm. but is legislative is legislative priority itself a law of the legislature? Uh, you know, how, it's going to be very hard to figure out how to how to answer interlegislative conflicts when they come up. Well, ninety nine percent of the people agree that first come first serve is fair. So no. we'll, we'll, <laughs> now, oh, that's a natural law argument. Well, Wait, we can't do that. <laughs> yeah. So one way you you have to answer that if you think that there are things like natural rights or even objective morality is to say, well, we want our legislative rights to answer to something different, right? So you could say from a natural rights perspective, we want our natural, our legislative rights to at least not infringe on our natural right. And I think it's a mistake to say that, to go whole hog on legislative rights and say, all there are are legislative rights and there's, there is no, there is no nothing to which legislative rights answer because that, you know, one, it leaves you in, in a decision problem with regard to interlegislative conflicts. But two, most of us just recognize that laws can be better or worse. You know, there are certain things that we do need to decide that aren't 
objectively right or wrong, but we need to make a decision on them. You need to drive on the right-hand side of the road to the left-hand side of the road. It's not like you know the entire nation of Britain is immoral because they drive on the uh, left-hand side of the road, right? We need to figure it out. But deciding that isn't the same thing as saying like, look guys, we need to figure out, you, are we, are we gonna be able to kill uh, our neighbor's children or not? <laughs> we just need to come to a decision about it, right? We need to figure out what kind of country we wanna live in. Right-hand side of the road, left-hand side of the road. Right-hand side of the road, kill people, or left-hand side of the road, don't kill people. Like, those are two different things. Um, and we tend to think that the driving on the one side of the road question, the only uh, constraints on whether you have the right, which side of the road you have the right to drive on, the only constraints to that are kind of interlegislative constraints, right? What do the other laws say? Is it compatible with them? Uh, but with the, you know, if I have, if the legislature grants me, uh, you know, the right to, you know, drink out of the skulls of my enemies or something, we think that now that's, there's something r- wrong with that, even if there aren't any interlegislative conflicts with mm-hmm. that, right? And I think that's a distinction that we need to keep. Yeah. All right. I think that looks like a good place to wrap. Has anybody got any last comments? Just, I I think that this pretty solidly wrapped up this idea, just tying it all back into the idea of lockdowns and what uh, the state should and shouldn't be able to do. This is a great example of a a conflict between uh, political rights and natural rights. And I, I think, you know, even those people who believe that rights are purely political hopefully can also understand that you know we we should have political rights that match you know this system kind of like justin was saying this this better system whereby people can't just be put in their homes regardless of permission or situation or things like that and so i i think this was a good wrap up yeah i just i'm i'm not sure i'm I'm much more clear on it now than I was before, but I go back to the Declaration of uh, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Those were the the baseline rights that I guess would have been legislative at the time or put into action, and then we laid on a whole bunch of more ones over time. Uh, and through our mix of humanity, right or wrong, and I guess what I'm saying is I think we help define things, but we don't have a lot of answers of the best way to move forward, other than maybe to continue educating people on what rights have meant historically, and hopefully they come to the opinion that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is a pretty good baseline to start from and and not to infringe on other people's uh, way of life that they want to. That was another rambling. So here we go. Well, thank you all for listening. This has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. Thank you all for listening. If you can do a five-star rating, that helps other people find us, and we appreciate it. We also have a little donate button at the Gorton Institute uh, homepage of Ottawa University. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.